Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz, and it is a pleasure to be back with you guys one-on-one tonight. We have been swamped with awesome guests. I hope you guys have been enjoying those interviews. I know I have, but it's good to be back with you guys one-on-one. We can go over the news. We can chat. And uh, we have today as a solo show. We're doing tomorrow as a solo show. And then Friday, we are kicking off what I am calling Black Summer Appreciation Month. Because I ain't kidding you guys, uh, for almost the entire month of July, we are going to get the who's who of Black Summer Season 2. And that kicks off this Friday with Zoe Marlette, who plays uh, Rose's daughter, Anna, on Black Summer. And then on July 6th, uh, if you guys have been following our social media, we have put together an amazing panel consisting of Jamie King, Justin Chu Carey, and Christine Lee, who respectively play Rose, Spears, and Son on Black Summer. Uh, you know, the original gang from season one that go into season two. Let's see. I mean, we just have... Uh, we have Bobby Nadiri uh, coming up and uh, Bashir Sylvain, who is doing a panel, again, with Justin Chu Carey right here on Dead Talk Live. So I wasn't kidding. Uh, we are going to have like the who's who of Black Summer Season 2 throughout the July, which is starting tomorrow. So you guys are going to have to tune in for that. The panels, the individual guests. We're going to get all the scoop uh, behind the scenes about season two of Black Summer. If you guys have not yet watched it and uh, you're horror fans, which I'm assuming you are since you're watching this show, please go ahead and watch season two of Black Summer. It's been out for several weeks now. It is just downright crazy. Many people have said, uh, you know, comparing Black Summer uh, to The Walking Dead and the aspect of how human civilization will more accurately react if the apocalypse were to happen. In this case, the fictional zombie apocalypse. And a lot of people said that, you know, Black Summer and the pure craziness of just meaningless killing back and forth of human beings is probably more reflective of how it would actually be, which is terrifying. I mean, forget the zombies. It is just terrifying, that thought. And if you guys have not watched season two of Black Summer, watch it, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. want to welcome some of our viewers who are with us tonight. Of course, a big thank you to all our moderators uh, we have Khaleesi, of course. Saz is with us. Jennifer is with us on uh, Facebook. Want hello to Jennifer. Lisa is joining us as well as this Philip, Tina. Uh, Lisa says, boy, Viz, you're going to give Chris Hardwick a run for his money. Ha! That's a good one. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Hard Productions is joining us. Uh, we have Happy When Happy. That's a great name. Just joined us. Uh, Ed Poe is with us. So welcome to all you guys. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to be going over the latest headlines, news, reviews, see a little 
see a couple of trailers tonight. But we do have a huge upcoming swath of guests coming up in July. Uh, I'm not kidding about that. Like I mentioned, Zoe this Friday, the Black Summer panel. We're also going to have Shane Johnson, who was the star in a great movie called The Possession of Michael King. Kerr Smith, who a lot of you might know from Dawson's Creek, is joining us. Laura Vosberg, who is the star of a great demonic possession movie called Inner Demons. Eric Knudsen, who is uh, in some Saw 2 and Scream 4. Travis Clough and Christopher Laughing, who are the, uh, the, the writers and directors of The Gallows. Dominic Burgess, who is starring in the upcoming Dr. Death movie, and on and on and on. And Sherry, Christine Evangelista from Fear the Walking Dead, is also going to be joining us. So that's not all. We're going to be getting a lot more before the end of July hits. Uh, yes, Jennifer Lutz. Kerr Smith uh, was in Final Destination. I believe he was. Yes. Yes, he was. Uh, he was. Uh, so, Kerr uh, Smith, Dawson's Creek, Final Destination, and a whole bunch of other movies as well. So, we have a big lineup coming up for you guys, starting uh, with uh, Zoe this Friday. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, Marco says uh, that was his first film. All right, did not know that. Want to welcome Viviana, who is just joining us as well. So we haven't done the news in a while, and, you know, there's always stuff popping up in the headlines, so let's go ahead and check it out. Now, breathe. don't breathe too. I don't know how many of you guys, this is a movie that surprisingly we haven't discussed very much of here on Dead Talk Live. I don't know how many of you guys have seen the first Don't Breathe about uh, a group of thieves that break into this, uh, what they think is this disabled blind man's house. And boy, are they thrown for a loop to see how cruel uh, this guy is. I'm not going to ruin the movie. Well, I guess I'm going to ruin partially. Basically, these thieves break into his house to rob him. And uh, yeah, they're in for a surprise. Let's just put it that way. The movie was really successful. It was really well received by critics and fans. There's a sequel coming out, a long-awaited sequel. And it's called Don't Breathe 2. There's a trailer that was released. The Blind Man Becomes a Terrorized and Grizzly Horror Sequel. So, here's a picture of the sequel. Let's see if there actually is a trailer here. Let's watch the trailer first, and then we'll talk about the article. So, let's watch this. Hi, I'm Rodos Ayagues. And I'm Fede Alvarez. We are thrilled to give IGN viewers this exclusive sneak peek at our new film, Don't Breathe 2. Only in theaters August 13. Hope you enjoy. Day after my birthday. in my hand. Sorry. I'll make it next time. You almost got me, didn't you, boy? We had a lot of fun today. I could take her again next week. No. Home is safer. 
Shadow! Lost kid. Get the girl. It's not me you need to be scared of, little girl. But the man standing next to you. Now I don't know who he is, but I know who he's not. Should I tell her or you? you guys have it uh so like i said if you haven't seen the first one you get the idea of what this is about he is blind but he is deadly to put it mildly and what it looks like in this movie the first movie is pure action uh, not a lot of character storytelling but it looks like in this one we're going to get some more of a backstory into who he is or like they said in the trailer who he's not uh, so I'm definitely psyched about that. So let's see what the article says. When Fede Alvarez 2016 horror movie Don't Breathe first debuted, it was not designed to launch a new horror movie franchise. And yet the film earned strong critical support. It has an 88% ratings on Rotten Tomatoes and was a summer sleeper hit at the box office with a worldwide gross under $160 million. When an original idea makes that much of an impact, Hollywood comes calling for a sequel. Enter Don't Breathe 2, which returns Stephen Lang uh, to the role of Norman Nordstrom, a.k.a. The Blind Man, opposite a cast of franchise newcomers that includes Brendan Sexton III and Madeline Grace. Well, yeah, the first ones are not going to come back because they're dead. Don't Breathe 2 is set in the years following the initial deadly home invasion as depicted in the first film. Norman Nordstrom Lang lives in quiet solace until his past sins catch up to him. Hence the character story. We get to find out a little bit more about what he's about. While Norman was the terrorizer in the first film... Uh, he's now the one being targeted in fighting back against evil. So he's the good guy in this. Uh, you know, I think he was the good guy in the first one as well, because 
If people are going to break into your house to steal shit, yeah, you know, all bets are off. Now, original, the original Don't Breathe director, Alvarez, is just a producer and a co-writer on the sequel as newcomer Roto Sayegues, I think I pronounced that right, makes his feature directorial debut with the follow-up film. Sayegues also co-wrote Don't Breathe 2 with Alvarez. And clearly he made an impact as he's also seen, he's also an, a, a producer on the upcoming Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot. Really looking forward to that. Let's see how they do with that one. Now, in the first film, Norman had the upper hand. Alvarez recently told IGN about the film. But this time, the tables are turned and the invaders totally outnumber him. And he's the one that will have to fight for his life against all odds. Now, IndieWire chief critic Eric Kahn gave the original Don't Breathe an enthusiastic B-plus review out of 2016 South by Southwest Film Festival, writing the formula for the home invasion thriller has fueled countless eerie showdowns, but Alvarez's Don't Breathe and is, is an especially dazzling example. The director's sophomore effort following his 2013 Evil Dead remake, which was also pretty good, finds a trio of reckless teens attempting to rob a blind man and inadvertently wind up trapped in his lair for the night. Equal parts Texas Chainsaw Massacre and High Tension, this elegant and surprisingly fast-paced blend of horror and suspense overcomes some of its more ridiculous ingredients thanks to the endless invention. Alvarez makes the terror of locked doors, dark rooms more unsettling than the terrible things they entail. Sony is set to release Don't Breathe 2 in theaters August 13th, which I did say is the day after my birthday. We just saw the trailer down below, so I am definitely looking forward for, to that. Philip also says, cannot wait for Don't Breathe 2. Khaleesi says, yep, I remember Don't Breathe. It was a great movie. I can't believe it's, it's been five years already since the first one came out. Damn. All right, The Forever Purge Review, another movie that we've been looking forward to. Insurrectionist and horror movie makeup. The Forever Purge is as blunt as the other films in the Blumhouse franchise, but is, but is looking more like a documentary than ever before. Movies typically take several take several years to get in front of an audience, from screenwriting, first putting words on the page, to the finished film, unspooling in a dark theater. So there's always a weird double take when a movie like The Forever Purge comes out and it seems to eerily capture or mirror events unfolding in real life as they are happening. Such has the case with the series of movies collectively known as The Purge. And just to give you an example of how crazy today's world has become, there have been several people on this live stream who said that we actually need a purge. I never thought I would hear those words spoken, but they were said. So anyway, uh, which in many ways have 
never outgrown their original recipe as a hard, violent shell of low-budget ba- low action horror wrapped around a vicious, somewhat self-contradictory center of socially conscious speculative fiction. Hmm. Now, yet whatever flaws one may find in the now five films in the series, um, the vision behind the narrative, primarily that of creator James DeMonico, who has written all five pictures and directed three of them, has remained remarkably consistent, often frightening, and right on the nose when it comes to the news. The Forever Purge may be the most terrifying in the films yet. Now, we saw a trailer for this a while ago, and the basic premise of the sequel is they do the purge. I guess the new president that got elected in the last movie, some people might have speculated this takes place after that night, where a group of people, maybe seeing the results of the election, continue to not stop killing when that horn sounds. So that's why it's called a forever purge. They just continue the purge beyond that 12-hour interval. Now, its central idea about an overnight 12-hour mechanical of hate in which all crime, including, including murder, is legal, gets turned on its head this time out. The monstrous creation of the totalitarian regime in power bites down hard on the hand that has fed it for years as the revelers decide they are taking power into their hands well past the 12-hour curfew. As the Forever Purge opens, the new founding fathers of America, that's the fictitious political party that has taken power, have wrested power back again. Okay, so it's not happening on the same night. I guess uh, she won the election, she gained power, but beyond that, it's going to be speculation. The uh, NFFA has regained power again. Uh, And no doubt through gerrymandering and voter suppression, after actually losing to uh, Charlene Roan in 2016 election year purge, the entry has the real-life scenario more or less right, but missed the outcome by a country mile. 2018's The First Purge, the first of the films not directed by DeMonico, was a vacation, 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 sorry, a vacation, I can't speak tonight, origin story set before the rest of the series. Now, with the NFFA back in the saddle in Washington, they immediately reinstitute the purge, which serves less as an escape valve for the country's anger issues than as a means for the NFFA to get rid of the impoverished and disenfranchised. The people the government is supposed to help by setting them against each other. As the nation prepares for another purge, our new movie turns into two central family units. The first is a Mexican couple named Adela and Juan, who escaped a vendetta held by their homeland's drug cartels some time back and now live industriously and quietly in Texas, 
where Juan and his friend Titi work on the ranch of the wealthy Tucker clan. Now, Tucker, patriarch Caleb, is old school if decent enough, treats his workers well, and is impressed with Juan's skills as a cowboy. But that only pisses off Caleb's son, Dylan, who doesn't consider himself racist, but believes that the folks should stay with their own kind. But yet he doesn't consider himself racist. Which is kind of what happens as the Tuckers, including Josh's pregnant wife, Emma, and more liberal-minded sister, Harper, lock down their mansion while Juan, Adela, and Titi must spend purge night in a local shelter. Oh, man, that sucks. Once the sun rises, the purge is over. However, the real horror begins. A large, loosely organized underground movement fueled primarily by their hatred of everyone from immigrants to the rich to anyone they don't consider real Americans decides that 12 hours is not enough. The purge is going to continue until the nation is cleansed, even if it means bringing down the NFFA as well. So it sounds like these guys are total anarchists. Now, from that point on, the Forever Purge turns mostly toward bloody action as the Tuckers must join forces with Adela, Juan, and Titi in order to reach the border in in El Paso, which has all too ironically been opened up for a limited time to let as many Americans as possible escape the carnage and chaos consuming the nation as a shocked world watches. So this is not just isolated to one town in Texas. The Forever Purge is nationwide, where this loosely organized group of people, and it can't be that loosely organized if they manage to coordinate this nationwide, continue killing after the 12-hour curfew. Now, the scenes of, of the forever purgers taking matters into their own hands and escaping the grip of the government that has essentially nurtured their violent growth hit very close to the bone in light of what happened in this country on January 6th, when a mob of ignorant traitors, their dull minds poisoned by the lies of a disgraced grifter, then occupying the White House made a violent attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in our history. By all accounts, the enablers of the impeached president and the leaders of his political party who looked the other way with his every transgression were just as shocked as the rest of the nation at what has transpired. No one is ever going to accuse this franchise of subtly and there's little evidence in this movie, but it's, but it's downright unsettling how the Forever Purge is remarkably parallels real life to some degree, giving it a gravitas to the film's proceedings that they may or may not deserve. Now, the film wrapped in February 2020, nearly a year before the January 6th insurrection. 
Although the action in the film has expanded greatly from previous entries, it's still relatively contained, which has its pros and cons. While that relegates the bigger story to mostly exposition, heard on radio broadcasts and so forth, denying the movie the full scope it might need, it also forces DeMonico and new franchise director Everardo Valerio Gout to focus on the main characters. With the exception of Juan and Adela, the rest of the characters, as with the other movies, are more rudimentary sketches. Lucas and Peyton try to bring some nuance to the rich white man they play, but the Tucker women folk are even less defined, and even Juan and Adela sometimes seem too saintly, too empathetic to be true even as our sympathies lie with them throughout the entire film. Gout directs the action well enough, and there are some scenes of genuine menace as our heroes find themselves caught in the crossfire of the burgeoning civil war between U.S. military and the forever purgers. So this is like all-out war. Yet the escape to the border plays out as a rather route, even when wider implication of what's happening in the background to give it its weight. We won't tell you how the forever purge ends, thank you, but it does take the series in a new direction that could serve as either a finale or the gateway to a continuation of the storyline. And I can answer that really quickly. If the movie does well, there's going to be another one. If the movie does not do well, this is probably the finale. And we can also tell you that even with its occasionally by-the-numbers feel, stock characterizations and sometimes uneven pacing we find the Forever Purge to be gripping, chilling, and darkly satisfying, even as it brought back a memory we have no desire to live through again. Now, the Forever Purge is out in theaters this Friday, and it says theaters only, so for those of you guys that have not been to a theater in a while, or your local movie theater is still shut down, uh, the way it's happening these days, I've said this before, uh, movies are coming out video on demand really, really soon after they come out on theater, come out in the theater. So if it does, co- it, it's being released this Friday, July 2nd, I would not be surprised by July 21st or the end of July, this movie is available on video on demand, if not even sooner. So I'm definitely going to watch that. Want to welcome Leon all the way from Colombia. Thank you for joining us, Leon. It's good to have you with us. Zoe has joined us on Twitter. Welcome, Zoe. It's good to have you back. Uh, Lisa says that's the scary part, parallel, paralleling real life. And guys, I've said this so many times. Uh, I know personally, uh, a lot of this probably holds true for a lot of us. We like watching horror movies. We enjoy the entertainment and all that. It's an escape from real life. But I keep saying this, that real life is a lot scarier than any fiction we can see on the screen. I'm not talking about blood, guts, gore. Uh, Just the the mere fact, going back to Black Summer 2, that if civilization were to fall apart, 
that people would react the way they do in season two of Black Summer, that scares the shit out of me. It really does. Not the zombies. And trust me, I mean, uh, Black Summer is the rage zombies. You can't even shoot them in the head. They're so quick. Forget about stabbing them in the head. Uh Uh-uh. Unless they're pinned down, which there are parts in season two where there is a zombie or two that's pinned down and they get to smash it over the head with the brick. Forget about stabbing them in the head like you see on The Walking Dead. They weave and bob, run so quick, it'll take you maybe a full magazine of ammo to try to maybe get one in the head. That's not what scares me. It's the people that scare me. And that's the whole point. Uh, That's the point of a lot of zombie films. It's not the zombies themselves. They act as a backdrop. It's how humanity, this part of humanity that survives, and how they're going to react to civilization falling apart. That's scary. Um, Chloe's with us. What about the true story about Bloody Mary? What about uh, the story about Bloody Mary? By the way, welcome, Chloe. Good to have you with us. So, let's see. Uh, Netflix is adding a ton of great horror titles next month. Let's see. The Strangers, Blood Red Sky, Resident Evil, Infinite Darkness. So, there you go. That's what's hitting Netflix. Uh, here's an interesting story. Sarah Paulson, the great actress from American Horror Story, admits that she was not a fan of Roanoke. I liked Roanoke. I really did. Now, American Horror Story Roanoke, like a lot of the seasons of American Horror Story, are loosely based on real-life events. Roanoke, uh, the American Horror Story season, is about a colony that literally just vanished off the face of the earth uh, without a trace as to what happened to them. And American Horror Story took it and ran with it. But according to this, Sarah Paulson, she wasn't a fan of that season. Now, American Horror Story just isn't American Horror Story without series mainstay Sarah Paulson, and I will second that. Uh, Just look at last season alone. I wasn't too excited about them going back to the 1980s slasher theme to begin with, but not having Sarah on the season, I mean, just hurt it even more. But there's one season Paulson admits she wasn't all that happy being a part of. The sixth season of FX's anthology series American Horror Story Roanoke cast Paulson in three different roles. That's what I love about her. She's such an amazing actress. Yeah, she played three different roles in a single season. With the, her, with the first half taking the form of a paranormal documentary titled My Roanoke Nightmare, and the second half bringing the show's reenactors and their real-world counterparts together for a found-footage tale involving ghosts of Roanoke's past. As it turns out, it's one season Paulson wishes she could have gotten out of. I just don't care about this season at all. Paulson recently admitted on The Hollywood Reporter, brought on to our attention by Entertainment Weekly. Paulson continues, I know people will get mad at me for saying it, but for me, this was, uh, sorry, this was post 
having played Marsha Clark in People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story, and it was what I went to do right after finishing Marsha. I was so underwhelmed by the whole experience because I felt like I'd, I had entered a new place inside myself in terms of what I thought possible, in terms of what I might be willing to see if I can do. I felt really kind of trapped by my responsibility and my contractual obligation to do American Horror Story. As much as it's my home and I've always loved it, it was the first time I felt like I wish I could have gone to Ryan Murphy and said, please let me sit this one out. Sarah Paulson will return to the world of American Horror Story in American Horror Story Double Feature, that's season 10, coming up later this year. Here's hoping it's a season that she's proud to be involved in. I loved her. I liked Roanoke. I mean, I can understand. She's explaining that she just came out of uh, uh, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. Uh, she, from what I understand from her quote, it opened her up to a whole new experience, to what she might be willing to try to do as an actress. And when she got to do American Horror Story Roanoke, like she says, she felt underwhelmed. So, I mean, I can understand that. I can, you know. But doesn't mean it was a bad season. And nowhere in there does she say that it was a bad season. She just was not too happy with the storyline. You know? Uh, Khaleesi says, I love uh, Roanoke. Also saying the zombies in Black Summer can break your windows in your car. Dude, in that first episode of season two, where the guy, I forget his character's name, who escaped in season one, turns and you sort of see the camera following him as he's a zombie, literally just bashing through doors. Uh, I mean, he was a big guy to begin with, just bashing through doors and he was only there for that first episode and thank you Khaleesi his name was Lance I'm willing to bet and I'll ask our panel when we have him here on July 6th that they probably filmed that when they were filming season one and for one reason or another decided to leave it out and put it into the beginning of season two uh, I find it kind of hard to believe that the actor came back for just that short bit in season two my guess is they probably filmed it when they were doing season one decided not to add it at the end of season one and just leave it there and just moved it to the beginning of season two that's just my guess so anyway moving on uh fear street now fear street is a uh, netflix tr uh, trilogy coming out next month which is tomorrow I don't know, it's not coming out tomorrow, but it is coming out in July. We are going to have a star from that show joining us later this month. So stay tuned, more details are going to come. But this is a Fear Street trilogy that takes place in three different uh, time periods. So as Netflix's new Fear Street trilogy of films reinvents the murder-filled slasher movie for a new generation... Anna Bukutskaya, oh, I'm going to butcher this, Bukutskaya, 
reflects on the horror genre's lasting appeal. Different types of horror each have their fans, but perhaps there is no subgenre equally as beloved and derided as the slasher movie. The masked killer, the pileup of dead bodies, and the final girl are some of the most recognizable elements of a type of horror film that just refuses to die. Now, in fact, it may be ready for another resurgence. This Friday sees the release of the first installment of Fear Street, the three-part film event which reinvents slasher tropes for a younger generation. Then later this year, the original slasher series, Halloween, continues with Halloween Kills, coming out in October later this year, while in 2022... The self-aware slasher movie franchise, Scream, is set to return with Scream 5. The first Scream film movie was more, sorry, the first Scream film in more than a decade. The original came out in 96, I believe. Horror has been evolving since the very beginning of cinema, but the slasher stands out as a type of horror film that is governed by structure, a set of rules, and have become so recognizable they are often parodied. Yes, they are. Although the slasher didn't experience its first peak period until the late 1970s, it arguably started started with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which established some of the rules that slasher films would continue to abide by 70 years later. These include a focus on a mysterious, brutal killer motivated by a traumatic event, whose identity remains a mystery until the end, and for his victims, the fact that the sex invariably equals death, and that you never go to investigate a dodgy situation alone, but yet they always do. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Atlantic in the 1960s and 70s, The roots of the slasher were forming in Italian giallo cinema, which took inspiration from cheap Italian crime novels and added gruesome murders and increased body counts. Directors like Mario Bava and Dario Argento combined the murder mystery narrative structure of crime novels with hyper-stylized murders that were equally gruesome and gorgeous. But it wasn't until 1978 that the slasher experienced its golden age, with the release of Halloween. Although there were uh, precursors, including Texas Chainsaw Massacre, about students who stumble onto a cannibal family, and Black Christmas, about an unseen killer terrorizing a group of female students in their sorority house, house both released in 1974 halloween was the first fully formed perfectly executed example of the genre it pulled visually from giallo uh, the featureless mask that uh, villain michael myers wears harkens back to bava's blood and black lace and the film stars with the favored giallo technique of a murder being committed from the killer's point of view, while being directly inspired by Black Christmas. 
Halloween's director, John Carpenter, had a conversation with Black Christmas's director, Bob Clark, about what would happen in a hypothetical sequel to his film. It would be the next year, and the guy who have actually been caught escape from a mental institution, go back to the house, and it would start all over again, Clark said. Now, most importantly, Halloween was decisive in uh, centering the slasher on teenage experience, something that would become crucial for the genre going forward. This furnished the slasher both with an enthusiastic teen market and with, with universally relatable characters whose everyday adolescent woes made the arrival of a mass murderer all more disturbing. Now, with a script originally titled The Babysitter Murders, Halloween was central in cementing the slasher tropes. That's right, I totally forgot about that. Halloween was originally going to be called The Babysitter Murders. Now, anyway, continuing on, uh, the Psycho and Giallo films uh, had first introduced while perfecting some newer ones, including with its heroine Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis, who the killer Myers becomes obsessed with. Strode was the defining final girl, a term coined by scholar Carol J. Clover in her seminal book on slasher films, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, which refers to the last woman standing in a slasher who is usually a paragon of innocence, rejects sex, and drugs, and is coded as somewhat androgynous. She, she is never the pretty cheerleader, more likely the cheerleader's friend, and is the character of the audience, regardless of gender, empathizes with the most. Okay, I mean, that's like the perfect uh, description of Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Laurie Strode, in Halloween. Now, in some slasher franchises like Halloween and later in Scream, the final girl is also the real protagonist of the films, whilst for the villain, killing her becomes the mission. For her, survival is everything. Strode grows stronger in every new entry in a slasher franchise, eventually becoming a hyper-capable, hyper-aware force of protection for those around her without that completely erasing the trauma of her ordeal. I think they're talking about Halloween 2018. Now, in Myers, Halloween also established a blueprint for the slasher villain. Whilst the final girl is the relatable central character, it's the slasher villain that typically becomes any franchise's icon. Their likeness is usually on the poster. Their name permeates the culture. They become Halloween costumes, Funko Pops, stickers, t-shirts, tattoos. Mike Munzer, creator and host of the Evolution of Horror podcast, tells BBC Culture that the perfect slasher villain is unstoppable. You can behead him, you can blow him up, and he will just keep coming back. They preferably have to have a simple backstory. In Halloween, we barely find out anything about Myers, 
except for the fact that he was evil incarnate from a very early age when we see him commit his first murder as a toddler. Well, he was six. Not really a toddler. As they have uh, to have the iconic look which makes them instantly recognizable even to non-horror fans. So it is that Myers, the Friday the 13th film's Jason Voorhees, in Scream's ever-changing ghost face, have all had their distinctive masks, while in Nightmare on Elm Street's Freddy Krueger has his bladed glove. The looks almost transcend even themselves, as Munzer points out. Now, like all monsters of horror cinema, slasher villains are almost always manifestation of cultural fears. While the original monsters of horror were supernatural creatures with a dramatic flair like Count Dracula, the Wolfman, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, or the Mummy, uh, this new generation of slasher villains was relentless predators whose identity was secondary to their iconography. At the same time, though, the villains of the slasher are always human, or were once anyway. And through them, we understand the core theme of the slasher film, the cycle of trauma that, if left undealt with, can lead people to commit terrible deeds. Mary Wilde, creator of the Projections Lecture Series at London's Freud Museum and co-host of the Projections Podcast, both looking at cinema through a psychoanalytical lens, sees trauma as a defining characteristic of the slasher villain, even down to the use of the knife as a preferred murder weapon when they are stabbing other people. It's an externalized manifestation of their trauma, displacing their own pain and suffering on somebody else, she tells BBC Culture. It's definitely trauma-driven, something really unspoken, and something that becomes corrosively taboo. I have never, I never thought that I'd be reading a psychoanalysis about a fictional movie killer. And that's exactly what we just read. They're psychoanalyzing Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger and Ghostface. Okay. Uh, The knife-wielding, mask-wearing villains of the slasher have become contemporary boogeyman, infecting the cultural consciousness of the generation in which they originated and then being revived and updated for new ones. Halloween was a massive box office success and a watershed cultural moment, creating a star and scream queen out of Jamie Lee Curtis, an instant icon on the mask-wearing Michael Myers, and launching a decade of slasher films to come, each iterating the rules established by Psycho, and finessed by Halloween. Building from that success, the 80s saw the beginning of extreme franchising of the slasher genre with the villains more than the victims or the final girls becoming the genre's main attraction. 
So far, Michael Myers of Halloween has had 12 films. Um, Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street, 7 films. Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, 12 as well. Even Norman Bates, the original proto-slasher villain, got his own franchise in the 80s, which explored his mommy issues in depth with Psycho 2, which came out in 1983, Psycho 3, 1986, Psycho 4, The Beginning, 1990. Sometimes the power of villain recognition has transcended the films themselves. Arguably, the Friday the 13th movies are more recognizable as Jason movies. And when it comes to Psycho, they forgot the whole Bates Motel TV show, which was really, really good. But anyway, this goes on and on and on. They do a deep, deep dive. I think we got enough out of this. And damn, we're already 49 minutes into this uh, show. Anyway, uh, Stephen King names the worst horror movie he's ever seen. I just want to see what it is. What is the worst horror movie you ever saw? For me, Blood Feast. All right. All right. No arguments there. So, in the little bit of time that we have left, let's talk about horrible parenting decisions in horror movies. You know, you got to discuss them at some point. And Norma Bates, we just talked about Psycho. An overbearing mom that we actually really get to find out the backstory that was created by the Bates Motel TV series. Uh, Norma Bates, played brilliantly by the excellent Vera Farmiga, who we all know now from the Conjuring series. Uh, she was on that show. So if you need any more reason, if you have not watched Bates Motel to watch it, there you go. She plays Norma Bates. Uh, Norman Bates, over-controlling mother. Uh, she has her moments of being normal. And then when it comes to her son, Norman, she knows he has issues. He has blackouts. He does these terrible things. And we find out that she does everything that a mother would do to protect her child. But the cost is people die. That's the cost. Now, Margaret White, Carrie, 1976. You want to talk about a terrible mom? Wow. Carrie's mom. Imagine being her daughter. Having to go through her, you know, insane religious fanatic punishment that poor Carrie had to endure. No wonder, you know, she slaughtered her high school at the prom when they decided to play that terribly cruel joke on her. Uh, Jack and Wendy Torrance, The Shining, okay? Not really terrible parents. Jack, uh, he was an alcoholic. We know that. He had a temper. And, of course, going to a possessed hotel, a, uh, a haunted hotel, and letting all the bad energy, all the bad juju in that hotel take him over, uh, take his personality over and make him even more into a bad person, will not earn him Father of the Year award. Definitely not. Let's see, who else do we have? Donald and Marge Thompson, A Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. Okay, can't leave them out. Jerry Blake, 
Stepfather, 1987. Now, Freddy's Dad, Freddy Krueger in The Final Nightmare, 1991. Uh, somehow, Freddy, Freddy made the list. First off, child murderer, already a bad candidate for parenting. He murders his daughter's mother in front of her for going into the shed. Another definitely nominee for worst dad of the year. Ah, Detective Eric Matthew, Saw 2, 2005, Donnie Wahlberg, okay? Um, and we're going to have the, the star who played his son on our show, Eric Knudsen, uh, coming up later this month. So we're going to get a lot more on that when Eric joins us in a couple of weeks. Let's see, uh, the parent, all the parents in Derry, Maine, from the It movie, because they just don't realize that their town, every couple of decades, is visited by a child-eating demon dressed up as a clown. No shame on them. Uh, Lori Strode, okay? Now, we saw her in H2O, the different variations that Laurie Strode has taken since the 1978 Halloween. Uh, she was a mom in H2O, which was came out to celebrate the 20-year anniversary of the original Halloween. She had a son. They ran away. She was the headmaster of a very posh uh, private school, alcoholic, and you can't really blame her for that, having dealt with Michael Myers and knowing that he's somewhere out there. She's trying her best to protect her son and herself from Michael Myers ever finding out where she's at, but he eventually does catch up with her. So, you know, you got to put Lewis and Rachel Creed. They're from Pet Cemetery. okay? Especially Lewis, who had the right uh, intentions with uh, bringing back that cat and burying it in the pet cemetery and then burying his tragically killed son, eventually his wife. But dude, this guy never learned his lesson. They don't come back the same way. But that never stopped him. He kept putting him in that pet cemetery and they would always come back as vicious murderers. He never learned his lessons. So there you guys have it. Just a few of some of the really, really terrible parents that we have seen throughout horror movies and throughout the decades. So anyway, uh, there's a lot more that could be added to the list. Uh, Walani says, uh, is Flowers in the Attic considered horror because major bad parenting there? Yeah. Why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why not? I want to welcome all the new people who just joined us, but we are at the end of our show. This hour has flown by. Uh, I love doing my interviews. I love talking to our guests, but I love the time that I have where it's just me and you guys as we go over headlines and news. So we'll be back at it tomorrow, Friday. We are welcoming Anna. Rose's daughter from Black Summer. So Zoe Marlette is going to be our guest on Friday. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, we are going to have anyone 
you know, all the big who's who in season two of Black Summer throughout the month of July. So go to our site, check out the entire list of upcoming guests. It is full and there's more going to be added day by day. So stay safe. I'll be back with you guys tomorrow night. And until then, remember, stay walking. Good night.